Welcome to Her Half of History, an evergreen podcast. My name is Lori. The current series is The Last Queen, and it turns out that I have already covered a woman who absolutely belongs in this series too. Cleopatra was originally part of series two on women who seized power. She is also the final chapter on over 3,000 years of Egyptian civilization. The country still exists, of course, but there has been no pharaoh since her defeat. Here is her story, now called episode 12.2, Cleopatra, Last Pharaoh of Egypt. For a woman as famous as Cleopatra, it is remarkably difficult to find good information. All of my sources contradicted each other, even on major points. Why the confusion? Well, the most readily available sources are Roman. Those authors were often far from the action, usually long afterwards, and utterly united in their hatred of Cleopatra. As a result, the history tends to read less like a biography of her and more like sordid scenes from the lives of various Roman men. Unfortunately, they are the best we've got. The Egyptian sources are mostly destroyed or underwater. Arabic sources were written even later than the Roman ones, so historians are forced into the business of making judgment calls about what's true and what's slander. We just do the best we can. Cleopatra was born into the Ptolemaic dynasty, which is traditionally snubbed by Egyptologists because the Ptolemies came to power after Alexander the Great invaded, making them more Greek than Egyptian. This is silly. Egypt had existed for thousands of years, and the Ptolemies were not the first invaders. Those other invading dynasties still count as Egyptian. By the time Cleopatra was born, in about 70 BCE, her family had ruled Egypt for 300 years. They supported and participated in Egyptian religious rituals. They were portrayed in art as traditional Egyptian pharaohs. Cleopatra conversed with her subjects in their native tongue. The Ptolemies had picked up Egypt's favorite method of consolidating power by blatantly ignoring traditional family values like genetic diversity. Most of the Ptolemaic pharaohs married their sisters. Even their names are homogenous. Almost all of the boys are named Ptolemy, and many of the girls are named Cleopatra. Our Cleopatra, by which I mean THE Cleopatra, was actually Cleopatra VII. Her father was Ptolemy XII, but historians generally use his nickname, Aletes, in a desperate attempt to keep things straight. Aletes ruled Egypt in a time when the Romans were flexing their muscles. Egypt was famously wealthy, a very tempting target. Aletes definitely married Cleopatra V, who may have been his sister. She definitely had one daughter. Then she falls out of the record and Aletes acknowledges several more children, including two girls, both named Cleopatra. Were they all born to Cleopatra V? Or did she die? If so, who replaced her? Maybe a native Egyptian? To the Egyptians, it didn't matter. Pharaohs often kept a full harem, and all of their children were considered legitimate. To us, Cleopatra's mother matters. Our own recent history makes us want to know whether Cleopatra was perhaps a powerful woman of color, unfairly maligned by the white men who wrote the histories. She was certainly most of that, but we just don't know about the woman of color part. The ancient Mediterranean world was a multi-ethnic one. Romans disliked and distrusted foreigners, but that wasn't about skin color. Southern Egyptians felt like the true Egyptians, while Northern Egyptians were ever so much more sophisticated than their country cousins to the South. But that was also not about skin color. In 3,000 years, Egypt had absorbed groups from every direction, 
leading to a hodgepodge of skin tones and hair textures living side by side. Being Egyptian was about birthplace, culture, and religion. So even if Cleopatra's mother was a native Egyptian, it tells us nothing about her race. None of her contemporaries considered her skin color important enough to write it down. Having established that we know very little about her race, we can move on to what we know about her childhood, which is nothing. The Ptolemies had nothing against educating and promoting women, so we assume she got a good education. In fact, the Ptolemies had an unusual tradition of equal co-rulers, with both a man and a woman leading the country. Cleopatra was joint ruler with her father for the last few years of his life. But the first real evidence we have of our Cleopatra doing things independently comes after Alitz's natural death in 51 BCE. In his will, he followed the Ptolemaic tradition and named her and her younger brother Ptolemy XIII as co-rulers, with the good citizens of Rome as guardians and protectors of his line. Now this is hardly a power grab. She inherited, legitimately, according to the rules of her country. Well, she inherited half the power. But as you will see, half isn't going to cut it for Cleopatra. To follow the shining example of their forebears, the siblings should have married at this point and started producing the next generation. Now let's pause here for a moment to consider. Getting married against your will is completely normal when you are a princess, but usually that means getting shipped off to marry a stranger who is anywhere from 1 to 51 years older than you, which is flatly terrifying. It usually does not mean marrying your snot-nosed, attention-stealing, tattletale little brother who is 10 years old. I mean, ew. Cleopatra, age 18, handled it by simply ruling alone. Her name appeared first on proclamations, except when she forgot to mention his at all. So her first step at seizing power was simply to freeze out her co-ruler. It won't be her last step. Unfortunately, the 10-year-old's advisors were not so ignorable. Within a couple of years, civil war appeared inevitable. Cleopatra had the support of the native Egyptians, but Ptolemy had the citizens of Alexandria, which held a major port, a lot of treasure, and the palace they had both grown up in. Meanwhile, Rome had its own problems. In theory, they were a republic and proud of it. In reality, dictatorship was up for grabs. When Caesar's army trounced Pompey's, Pompey fled to Egypt, hoping for Ptolemy's support. Ptolemy's advisors thought it was clear that Caesar was on the rise. They didn't want to back the wrong horse. Pompey was welcomed courteously off his boat, at which point he was stabbed in the back and his head was chopped off. His body they dumped, but they kept his head and presented it proudly to Caesar when he arrived four days later. In the Eastern tradition, the severed head of your mortal enemy was a great welcome gift. How pleased Caesar would be. Except that he wasn't. Romans prided themselves on their battle prowess and civilized behavior. To stab an honorable enemy in the back was shameful. For a barbarian Easterner to murder a Roman citizen was insulting. And presenting his head on a platter? Ew again. Oh, and by the way, Pompey also happened to be Caesar's father-in-law. That's a bit hard to explain to the wife. Caesar wept openly. Whether he was really as grieved as all that, we'll never know, but it made a good show. Before the sunset, he had commandeered the palace, and Ptolemy's hopes of Caesar supporting his sole claim against his sisters were wobbling badly. 
Caesar probably could have simply annexed Egypt, but instead he settled himself in the palace and determined that he would resolve the issue. It was, after all, his duty. Alitz's will had charged the citizens of Rome with supporting and protecting his children. Julius Caesar practically was Rome. He ordered both pharaohs to appear before him. This was easy for Ptolemy. He was already there. It was not so easy for Cleopatra. She would have to come through the hostile city of Alexandria, an easy mark for both jeerers and assassins. According to Plutarch, she accomplished this by hiding herself within the bedroll or rug of a merchant, who then smuggled her through the city and into the palace at night, where the bundle was dropped before Caesar to reveal the exotically alluring young woman exactly as she planned. It's a great spy story. It's also a little hard to swallow. Was there no security checking up on unknown merchants with suspicious packages? Would a new bedroll have been dumped in front of Caesar himself rather than a servant? Would a young woman with seduction on her mind want her victim's first glimpse to be as she tumbled, disheveled, and bruised out of a rug? However it was accomplished, she certainly arrived before Caesar in the evening, and he certainly did not find her too disheveled to be attractive. He was 30 years older than her, and married, but who cares about that sort of thing? He had divorced one wife on the mere suggestion of her unfaithfulness, having said famously that Caesar's wife must be above suspicion. He was married again, and he himself was above suspicion in the sense that publicly confirmed facts eliminate any need for mere suspicion. When Ptolemy XIII, age 13, woke up in the morning, all his hopes were finally dashed. His sister was not only in the city, she was in the palace. Caesar did not seem at all disposed to get rid of her. Ptolemy reacted with all the maturity and dignity that his 13 years had given him. He ran from the palace, tore off his diadem, and threw it at the ground in a public temper tantrum. If Caesar thought he had stopped the war, he was wrong. Ptolemy's armies attacked anyway. The fleet was burned, the palaces and library were burned, Caesar himself almost drowned. Ptolemy managed to persuade Caesar to release him on the promise of good behavior, and of course he broke his promise immediately. Cleopatra seems to have remained silent and inactive, at least according to the Roman sources, right up until the point that Ptolemy got himself drowned crossing the Nile, and that was the end of that. Caesar reinstated Cleopatra, which has sometimes been used to further suggest that Cleopatra really didn't do anything and it was all down to Caesar, which is a bit unfair when you consider that she was actively leading one side of a civil war when he arrived. She made a valuable alliance, that's all. Either way, Cleopatra was back, with her even younger brother at her side, named, you guessed it, Ptolemy Fourteenth. One source states that Cleopatra did definitely marry this brother, lucky him. So her second step to seizing power was to fight off her first co-ruler, and then install an even more ineffective second co-ruler. Caesar could have dusted off his hands for a job well done and headed back out to Rome or further conquest, but he didn't. He hung around with Cleopatra. They took a pleasure cruise up the Nile through crocodile-infested waters. Cleopatra gave birth to a son who was named, wait for it, Ptolemy. Ptolemy Caesar, in this case, which is just a little hint that the prepubescent Ptolemy XIV might not have been the father. Neither Caesar nor Cleopatra recorded his paternity officially. Cleopatra didn't need to. Her acknowledgement was all her son needed to be accepted by Egyptians. For Caesar, life was more complicated. Romans wanted legitimate kids, 
and they didn't believe in polygamy, and even if they had, it was illegal to marry a foreigner. This whole Cleopatra fling was an embarrassment. Why hadn't he just annexed Egypt? How could their great and glorious leader have lost his head over a woman? Especially a debauched, despotic, corrupt, conniving seductress. Didn't he see that she was making a fool of him? In the summer of 47 BCE, Caesar left Egypt to go on a few more campaigns, which he won, of course, and by the following year he was settled back in Italy. Shortly thereafter, Cleopatra, her younger brother, and her son arrived and moved into Caesar's own estate. Roman society was both appalled and fascinated. It was rumored that Caesar was planning to change the laws so that he could marry Cleopatra and acknowledge her son with his oh-so-unsubtle name. Whether Caesar planned that or not, it never materialized. He was betrayed, stabbed, and killed. His will made no mention of Cleopatra or her family. But then again, it couldn't have. It was illegal to leave bequests to foreigners. We have no record of how Cleopatra felt about his death. There are hints that she may have been pregnant again at the time, but if so, she lost that baby. A double tragedy for her in a very short time frame. If she had planned on becoming Empress of Rome, there was no hope for it now. But she was still Pharaoh of Egypt, and in 44 BCE she was back in her own country. Within months, Ptolemy XIV was dead. While there is no absolute evidence, it was generally assumed, both then and now, that she followed her family's traditions and had him poisoned. He was getting to the age where he might have been troublesome, and she didn't need him as a co-ruler anymore. She had a son to be her co-ruler. Also, by emphasizing her identity as a mother, she could step into the semi-divine role as the living Isis, a powerful image to both her Greek and Roman subjects, from Pharaoh to goddess. So her final and most complete method of power grabbing was assassination. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi friends, I just wanted to tell you about a new history-slash-true-crime podcast called American Criminal, from the studio behind the hits American Scandal and American History Tellers. Hosted by Jeremy Schwartz, each weekly episode explores the dark side to the American dream, the notorious felons and outlaws who tried to lie, cheat, and murder their way to the top. Season 1 covers one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders, Future seasons will cover Al Capone, Charles Manson, Bernie Madoff, and, lest you think women will only feature as victims, also Georgia Tan and Glenn Maxwell. Check out American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Cleopatra ruled alone and competently for three years. Her position was secure, and Egypt was at peace. Rome was in shambles. 
Caesar's death had brought not stability, but a blame game. Naturally, all sides wanted Egypt's support. After some hesitation, Cleopatra came out in favor of those seeking to punish Caesar's murderers. She and her fleet set up to join them in Greece, but a combination of bad weather, seasickness, and possibly a desire to delay truly committing herself sent them fumbling their way back to Alexandria. Brutus and Cassius were defeated anyway, and that left Octavian, Caesar's adopted heir, and Mark Antony, Caesar's longtime friend, both poised for total control. Octavian was young, sickly, and widely accused of cowardice. Mark Antony was older, healthier, more popular, and firmly in control of the Eastern Empire. Who would you have backed? Cleopatra needed a powerful Roman to protect her claims to Egypt. Mark Antony needed money to pay his troops. It was a match made in heaven. Mark Antony summoned Cleopatra to meet him in Tarsus. It is very likely that she knew Mark Antony already, and she may have known how best to handle him. She set sail as the living embodiment of Isis, in a gilded ship with silver-plate oars and a sail of purple silk. Musicians played on the deck. Incense wafted through the air. Cleopatra lounged under a gold-spangled canopy. Her attendants were small boys dressed as cupids. The good people of Tarsus came down to the harbor to gawk. Mark Antony sat up in the center of town waiting for her to arrive. More people went down to the harbor to gawk. He sent her an invitation to come up to dinner. She countered with an invitation for him to come down to dinner. Finally, he could not sit around waiting for her any longer while his attendants slipped down to the harbor. He went to her. As the Roman sources tell it, Mark Antony was a simple, good-hearted country boy, the type who just couldn't be expected to control himself in the presence of an experienced, duplicitous temptress like Cleopatra. He immediately, and I'm quoting here, joined Cleopatra and the Egyptians in general in their life of luxurious ease until he was entirely demoralized. Well, maybe, but this simple, good-hearted country boy was also bent on dominating the Roman Empire and he needed her money. Perhaps he was just hard-headed and ambitious, and also not averse to feasting, drinking, and more sensual pleasures, which, according to the Roman accounts, filled 100% of their time together. When Cleopatra returned to Egypt, Antony followed her. They enjoyed a winter together. Nine months later, Cleopatra gave birth to twins, a boy and a girl. Antony had already left Egypt by the time of their birth. They did not see each other again for three and a half years, so either he wasn't as lovesick as all that, or he was busy. The Parthians were attacking, several of Rome's client kings had defected, and Octavian was eroding Antony's support in Rome. Meanwhile, Cleopatra presided over her own country, and it was doing very well. By 36 BCE, Octavian was beginning to get the upper hand. Antony needed money again. When he and Cleopatra met again, he gave her Cyprus, Crete, Libya, Phoenicia, etc., etc., etc. Cleopatra was now the wealthiest monarch in the Western world. Antony also acknowledged his twins, who were grandly named Alexander Helios, the sun, and Cleopatra Selene, the moon. Nine months later, Cleopatra bore another son. Romans were appalled at yet another moral lapse, but Antony got what he wanted. Newly supplied with the Egyptian fleet and Egyptian provisions, Antony turned to attack Parthia. It didn't go well. He lost a huge number of men and was forced to retreat. Once again, Cleopatra was called on for help, and once again, they both recuperated in Alexandria. In the Western Empire, Octavian scored several major victories. 
He also got to play up the way he was a virtuous, honorable citizen of Rome, while his poor, much-wronged sister, Mark Antony's wife, was publicly humiliated by a foreign witch who preyed on other women's husbands. Rumors of Cleopatra's unnatural relationships with everyone from close relatives to neighboring kings to slaves to otherwise upstanding Roman citizens made the rounds, growing bigger with every telling. It is impossible to know for sure, but we have no evidence that she ever had a relationship with anyone beyond Caesar and after his death Mark Antony. Certainly the two of them can account for all her known children. The propaganda war was in full swing. Roman citizens were told that Cleopatra made Mark Antony rub her feet like a slave. She had convinced him to abandon Rome and make Alexandria the capital of the empire. He was so under her power that she was going to use him to rule Rome herself. Mark Antony was not above the mudslinging either. He accused Octavian of humble origins, being Caesar's catamite, running away from battle, feasting during times of public hunger, and even, and this was really bad, using red-hot walnut shells to singe away his leg hair. When you are reduced to criticizing leg hair, perhaps war is inevitable. Mark Antony, Cleopatra, several consuls, and 300 loyal senators began assembling a fleet in Greece. The senators did not want Cleopatra to be there. They did not view themselves as supporting Egypt against Rome. They preferred to support Mark Antony against Octavian. Mark Antony refused to send her away, maybe because of infatuation, but more likely because she was experienced, intelligent, and the financial linchpin of the whole venture. Octavian assembled his fleet in Italy. His preparations were substantially behind theirs, but if they attacked him first, the Italian population would see it as a foreign invasion. They certainly weren't going to accept Cleopatra taking Rome by force. It was not until late 32 BCE that Octavian was finally ready. The Senate formally stripped Antony of all his titles. Octavian stood before the Temple of Bologna, goddess of war, and ritually declared war on Cleopatra, not Mark Antony. Things went badly for Cleopatra from the start. The omens were not in her favor, as demonstrated by an earthquake, statues being struck by lightning, and the like. In more practical terms, the supply lines were cut, malaria and dysentery struck, and morale was distressingly low. It was time for a new plan. All the most valuable possessions were loaded onto their best vessel. On September 2nd, 31 BCE, in the midst of a sea battle, Cleopatra raised sails on 60 ships and made a break for it. Mark Antony followed her with 40 ships. Octavian records that he killed 5,000 of Antony's men, and he took 300 of Antony's ships. He also quickly caught the ground troops and bribed them to join his side, which can't have been hard given that they had nowhere else to go. What he missed, however, was the war chest with enough treasure to pay for his campaign. Cleopatra had saved that. Even so, the Battle of Actium made the end inevitable. Cleopatra returned to Egypt, consolidated her assets, and made plans to flee before Octavian could arrive to follow up on his victory. Her plan was to make use of Egypt's other coastline and escape by way of the Red Sea. Unfortunately for her, the Suez Canal would not be built for another 2,000 years, so she needed her fleet to be transported overland. This was not unheard of. Previous pharaohs had done it, but going overland was a slow business, and her boats were attacked and destroyed by a client king wishing to please Octavian. Increasingly desperate, Cleopatra sent her oldest son away overland to the Red Sea with half the treasury and instructions to flee to India. She moved the other half of her treasure into her mausoleum and surrounded it with flammable material. She preferred to burn it rather than give Octavian the satisfaction of seizing it. 
According to Plutarch, Cleopatra also began to experiment with poisons, ultimately concluding that the bite of an asp was the quickest and least painful way to end her life, should the need arise. Meanwhile, Octavian was in touch. Cleopatra asked if she could abdicate in favor of her children. Octavian said she should kill Antony first, and then he would think about it. Antony asked if he could simply live as a private citizen. Octavian didn't bother to respond. Cleopatra tried to bribe Octavian. He took the money and continued to advance. Morale in the Egyptian camp was abysmally low. Cleopatra rewarded one brave soldier with golden armor. He deserted for the enemy the same night. On August 1st, 31 BCE, Antony led his troops out for a final stand. The Egyptian fleet sailed out to engage Octavian's ships. Antony stood on firm ground and watched while his fleet approached the enemy. They drew close, ready to attack, and then turned around, raising oars to Octavian and joining him. The cavalry, witnessing this, deserted immediately. The infantry stayed, but what could they do against so many? And report came that Cleopatra had killed herself. Mark Antony, knowing that all hope was lost, stabbed himself in the stomach so that he lay writhing on the ground when word came that Cleopatra had not killed herself after all. Oops. What she had done was barricade herself in the mausoleum with her treasure. The doors were sealed. Mark Antony, still writhing, was hauled up the walls on ropes to enter through a window before dying in her arms. Octavian was not pleased. He wanted Cleopatra alive so he could parade her through Rome as a living symbol of his victory, and he definitely could not afford to let her treasure burn. He had fully absorbed a point that so many future emperors would also realize. The key to being emperor of Rome is to pay the troops well. So at this point, the battle was irrelevant. Everything depended on Cleopatra herself. Octavian's negotiator spoke with Cleopatra through a locked door. She refused to open it and begged for her children's lives. While she was kept busy talking, another man used a ladder to enter the mausoleum through the same window Mark Antony had entered. He crept up behind her and captured her. How Octavian must have grinned. Mark Antony was dead. Good. Cleopatra was alive and captured. Good. The treasure was unburned and in his hands. Very good. Back in Rome, interest rates dropped from 12 to 4% overnight. Cleopatra was hustled from the mausoleum to the palace, where she grieved, stopped eating, and grew feverish. Octavian forced her to eat by threatening her children. Depending on which Roman account you believe, Cleopatra was either practically dead with grief and blubbering about how everything was Mark Antony's fault, or... She was still a charming siren who pulled out her old tricks and tried seducing her third powerful Roman. Only this time, Octavian, that model married man, showed his moral fortitude and refused her. Women have done many things to save their lives and their children, so maybe she did try. But Octavian's moral uprightness is hard to square with his long history of affairs. A more likely explanation is that he simply had no need to ally with her the way Caesar and Mark Antony had. He had already won everything he wanted. He did, graciously, allow Cleopatra to visit Mark Antony's tomb. On her return to the palace, she sent a sealed message to Octavian and dismissed all but two servants. In the message, she asked to be buried with Mark Antony. Octavian correctly interpreted it as a suicide note, but he was too late. When guards arrived, Cleopatra was already dead and her servants were nearly so. 
The image of Cleopatra dying from the bite of an asp on her breast is so famous that it may come as some surprise to learn that her death is an unsolved mystery. The room was sealed. The only wounds were a couple of pinpricks on her arm. If it was an asp, where did the snake come from, and where did it go? The Egyptian cobra, the most likely species, is over six feet long. Quite a thing to smuggle in safely. How did she convince it to bite her, and not only her, but also her two servants? Even if it did bite them all, a single snake doesn't have enough poison to kill three adults. At least one historian has come to the conclusion that there never was a snake. Maybe she just used poison. Easier to smuggle, and far more certain to cause death. However, she was dead. Three thousand years of history ended as Octavian annexed the Egyptian Empire on August 31st, 30 BCE. There is no denying the level of importance he attributed to Cleopatra. The month of July had been named to honor the birthday of Julius Caesar. The month of August was named for Octavian, who took the name Augustus. But he wasn't born in August. It was, rather, the month that he defeated Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt. My major source on this was Joyce Tildesley's biography, Cleopatra, Last Queen of Egypt. You could find other sources, plus a transcript and pictures that may or may not actually be Cleopatra on the website at herhalfofhistory.com. If you are able to support the podcast, that is a big help toward keeping it going. Ways to support range from the absolutely free, like leaving a review, a rating, or sharing with a friend, to the not very expensive, like signing up on Patreon or on Into History, to the one-time donations of any size that fit into any budget. Your help really is appreciated. Links to do all of that are available in the show notes or on the website. Next week, we have another very famous woman who fell out with Rome's manifest destiny. We're heading north to what would eventually be called England, where a woman named Boudicca had strong opinions on who should rule her tribe. Don't miss it. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.